good to be together uh, as the body of Christ. Amen? Um, today, we want to wrap up our series. We've been in a verse-by-verse -verse, uh, series through the book of Philippians, and uh, today I want to kind of bring that to a series conclusion, and I want to go back to uh, the beginning of this actual church in history, how it got its start, and so we're going to take a look at that actually over in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there, Acts chapter 16. Uh, before we go there, though, I just want to remind you of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him according to his purposes. What is the statement there that God works through how many things? Say it one more time. How many things? Hmm. Sometimes it can be a little bit tough to convince us that, God, you're working through my car problems. God, you're working through my washing machine blues. God, you're working through the trouble and the distress that I've got in my life that we've got around us, that you're actually working through all things. But that's the promise that God gives us this morning. And we're going to see that play out in dramatic fashion here in Acts chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Acts chapter 16. Let me give you just a little bit of background of what's going on when we get to verse 35, which is where we're going to start reading. Um, the Apostle Paul has been on his second missionary journey. He's traveled to Derby, then he went to Lystra. In Lystra, he picked up a young guy by the name of Timothy. They went on to Iconium in kind of Central Asia Minor. And then they went up into Bithynia with the intent that they were going to head up into Asia and begin sharing the gospel there. But the Holy Spirit instructed them they were not to go that way, but rather they wanted to head east toward Europe. And so that's what the Apostle Paul and his group did. They ended up in Troas on the shore of the, Medi or shore of the um, Aegean Sea, and they picked up a guy by the name of Luke, Dr. Luke. And so they now got a group of four. It's Paul and Silas, the original two of the second missionary journey. They picked up Timothy, this young guy who has a lot of promise, and they picked up a guy by the name of Luke. And Luke is actually the one who's writing the book of Acts and recording what's happening here. And then they go from Troas to a little, they jump on a ship and go to a little island by, called Samothrace. From Samothrace, they go to Neapolis. Neapolis is on the northern tip on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And from there, they go inland just a few miles to the city of Philippi. Philippi was a city named after Philip of Macedon. He was the guy who originally kind of made that area for the Greeks something to be uh, talked about. And so, that, so they named the city after him, after Philip of Macedon. They called it Philippi. He had a son by the name of Augustus. Alexander, thank you. That was good. That was pretty quick. Um, so they had a son named Alexander. Alexander the Great went on to conquer much of the world all the way out to India. And then his empire was broke up into four different places. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit. You can tell it's going to be a history lesson today. Right? So uh, anyhow, so what happens is Paul gets to Philippi and he shares the gospel. He goes down to a little river that's alongside the, the city and the ladies are down there doing their laundry in the morning and he's sharing the gospel with them. He's only been there a couple of days and every day when he goes out to, to this river to share the gospel with the folks that are there doing their laundry in the mornings, there's this young girl, 10, 12 years of age, and so she's, got, she's possessed by a demon and she's able to predict the future. And she's got these people who kind of, and uh, uh, a group of owners, if you would, who oversee her and take up money from folks, and then she, she predicts their future or whatever. And so she's very lucrative business for them. And every day when Apostle Paul walks by her, she says, there's the one who serves the Most High God. And every day Apostle Paul hears this, and it's drawn some attention to Paul, and he really doesn't like the attention that he's getting as a result of this. And so one day as he's walking by her, he's only been there a couple of days, one day as he's walking by her, he says to her, I rebuke the Spirit, and I command you to go out of her. Well, then she goes into her right mind, and she's fully good, but she's also lost her ability to predict the future. And so that's a really bad thing for the guys who own her. They just lost their business. And so because of that, they grab the Apostle Paul, they take him very roughly to the magistrates, to the court there in Philippi. The magistrates... Um, flog Paul, they strip him down, they beat him, treat him, mistreat him very badly. 
And then the Apostle Paul ends up in prison for the night. And so I got a picture for you here of the prison that the Apostle Paul was in. This is not just believed to be it. This is actually the prison that the Apostle Paul was in. It's up on a mountaintop, about halfway up, overlooking the city of Philippi. And this is where the Apostle Paul was held. Well, during the middle of the night, there's an earthquake that happens. And the jail cells all pop open. And their, and their chains pop off of their legs and their wrists. And the Apostle Paul can go free. Again, middle of the night. Well, the jailer who's there, he's a Roman jailer. And he knows that if anybody, my prisoners is escape, then I'm, it's it for me, right? And so the jailer gets ready to jump on his sword because he figures I'm going to die by the hand of somebody else later. Might as well die by my own hand. And Paul yells out from his prison cell, hey, no, no, we're still here. Well, he shares the gospel in the middle of the night with this jailer. The jailer says, that's amazing. He responds. He accepts Christ into his life. He takes Paul and Silas back to his house. Perhaps they give him a little bit of nourishment, give him a little bit of water, help revive these two guys who have been flogged the, the day before. They're really beat up. And then Paul shares the gospel with this jailer's house, the people in, in this jailer's house, middle of the night, right, 4 o'clock in the morning. We can kind of imagine kind of like these guys that were out here camping last night, sharing the gospel, and, they, and, his, and the jailer's household responds to the gospel. They're baptized in the middle of the night. They go back the next morning to the jail cell, and then we come to Acts chapter 16, verse 35. Let's stand and read what happens next. Okay, here we go. Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 35. And I got my little Bible out today, so... Pardon me. Here we go. Verse 35. It says, When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. Verse 40, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, then they left. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so again, we're talking about the start of this church in Philippi. Remember, there's a letter here that we, we've been studying the last 11 weeks. Isn't that crazy? This is week 12. And we've been studying all these weeks, and it's the book of Philippians. It's a letter that was written to an actual church, to Christians who lived in the city of Philippi. And this right here, Acts chapter 16, records how this church in Philippi got started. There was a lady named Lydia. It was his, his, his first convert. Her household got co converted to Christ. Then these ladies who were there by the river doing their laundry, some of them came to Christ, and then the jailer comes to Christ. What is of interest to us in this story comes in verse I think it's verse 38. Yeah, look at verse 38 with me. It says, The officers reported this to the magistrates. Remember, Paul and Silas had been beaten the day before. All these things happened during the night. Paul comes back the next morning to the jail, and then these events uh, unfold. Verse 38 says, The officers reported this, that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. To the magistrates, when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Now, in the Greek text, the word that's translated there, alarmed, is the word phobeo. It comes from the word phobia that we have in our language, and that means what? Scared, fearful. It means that there's something that we're scared about. We have phobia, arachnophobia, we have claustrophobia, we have all these different phobias. Well, this is the root word here, phobeo in the Greek, and it means that they were scared literally to death. 
These local magistrates, the guys who had overseen Paul and Silas um, being flogged, Paul and Silas being stripped and beaten, Paul and Silas having all these bad things happen to them. And it says when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, the response, the reaction in their heart was that they were phobeo, that they were literally scared for their lives. Here's a guy, Paul, had just been beaten the day before, thrown in jail, and now all of a sudden it's like he's got all the cards in his deck. Now, how is it that that's the case? Why is it that Paul was, finding out that Paul was a Roman citizen, that this causes such a reaction in these local magistrates, men of great power and great prestige, right? Well, um, when we think about it, where am I at right now? Because I don't have any notes, so you know, I'm just thinking here. So, uh, so Paul and Silas, you know, they, they're, these, these guys are phobeo because of it. I can't remember where I'm going. <laughs> Somebody help me out. Anyway, so let me read verse 38 again. It'll jog to me. So the officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They were phobeo. Okay, so how is it that these guys were alarmed? How is these guys were? Okay, I know where I was going. All right, here we go. So Jesus, this is, this is what kind of threw me off. Jesus says in the Gospels, there's a place in the Gospels where he records about how a uh, person who is walking down the road, and you're, you're riding on your donkey, or you're riding on your mode of transportation, and you come up on somebody, and, you have, and it says that you have to go with that person for one mile. Well, what Jesus is referring to there is the fact that the person you come up on is a Roman citizen. Remember, the Romans had conquered that whole part of the world. And so because of that, to be a Roman citizen gave you certain rights and privileges that the rest of the people who were in the conquered territory didn't have. It was a way of Rome saying to the people who lived in that territory, hey, you're a conquered people. And so because of that, if you're walking down the, or you're going down the road on your donkey and you come up on a Roman citizen, you have to hop off of your donkey, put the Roman citizen up on your donkey, and then lead that donkey down the road for one mile. And so Jesus says somebody would compel you to go with him one mile, go with him also two. And so Jesus is referring here to this special privilege that some of the Roman, Roman citizens had. Well, one of the other privileges that if you, had, if, you had, if you were a Roman citizen that you had was if you were... Um, accused of some sort of a crime, there were kind of three different things that went along with that that other people didn't have privy to. One of them was that you had to have a fair trial. Did Paul and Silas have a trial? No. They were just literally brought before the magistrates, flogged those guys, strip them down, beat them, whatever, throw them in jail. There was no, there was no uh, back and forth between a defense attorney or anything like that. They didn't even have their Miranda rights read to them, right? And so, so that's, that's kind of strike one against these magistrates. So they're Roman citizens, Paul and Silas, and then they didn't have a fair trial, strike one. Strike two was that they were, you're not allowed to humiliate a Roman citizen. Again, they're wanting to drive home to everybody that they've conquered that, hey, look, Rome is in charge here. And so one of the ways that we can drive that home is never to have any of our own Roman citizens embarrassed publicly. Um, Look at verse 22 with me, Acts chapter 16, verse 22. It says, The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. That is, that Paul and Silas were stripped down to the birthday suits in public, in front of this whole town, humiliated publicly. And the third thing is that you're not allowed to be flogged. Roman citizens were never, even if you committed some sort of a crime and were convicted of it, you're never allowed to be Uh, punished in this way. Look at verse 23. It says, after they had been severely flogged, they were then thrown into prison. So Paul and Silas, so strike one, strike two, strike three against these magistrates. You see, the magistrates know that if word ever gets back to the the higher-ups, to the folks up the food chain, that it's going to be lights out for the magistrates because they have violated the rights of Roman citizens. And you do not do that in the empire of Rome. But they had done it. And so Paul finds himself in a position where he's got an upper hand on these magistrates, right? He finds all of a sudden he's the one holding the cards. 
Um, and so when you look at verse 38, it says that they were Roman citizens. These guys had done these bad things to them, and so they're phobeo. They're literally scared for their own lives. The magistrates are scared for their own lives because they had strike one, strike two, strike three against Paul and Silas. Now, there's another occasion in the Scriptures where this happens, and I just want to point it out to you. It comes a couple chapters later, Acts chapter 22. Again, we're talking a little bit, we're talking this morning about the start of this church in Philippi. This jumps stories, but just bear with me. Acts chapter 22 and verse 22, or verse 23. No, verse 20, yeah, verse 23. It says, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. So this is a different situation, different occasion. Uh, Paul and Silas, they're out preaching the gospel, and Paul has called the dust up. Paul has called a ruckus. Somebody shared that with me in the first service. I was trying to find a word, and they gave me a word. So Paul has shared a ruckus. Um, and which is kind of common for Paul, raise out preaching, and people get all upset about what he's saying. And so they're throwing dirt in the air, right? We're upset about this. And so the local Romans, they realize something's going on here, and they want to quell this uh, insurrection or whatever it is that's happening. And so verse 24, it says, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He, he directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. In other words, we're going to take the cane pole to Paul. We're going to flog him a little bit. Maybe we won't do it quite as much as we would if he was being convicted of something, but we'll soften him up a bit and we'll get him talking to find out why these people are throwing dirt in the air and they're all mad at him, right? Verse 25, as they stretched him out, Paul out, to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, so he turns to one of the guys who's just you know, carrying out the orders, he says, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who has not even been found guilty? In other words, I hadn't been to trial yet, and you're about ready to flog me, and I'm a Roman citizen, by the way. Right? Verse 26, look at the reaction. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it, and look at his response to the commander. He says, what are you going to do? His first, his first thing wasn't, uh, we've got a, somewhat of a problem here. What do you think we ought to do here? It's, we have a problem, right? Houston, we have a problem. What are we going to do about this now? We've got a mess on our hands. He realizes this. Um, look at verse, uh, uh, he says, this man's a Roman citizen. Verse 27, it says, the commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? So notice here, he doesn't send the centurion back. He doesn't want a bunch of back and forth relay of messages. He wants to go himself. This gets his attention. And so he goes marching down there to wherever Paul is. Paul's being stretched out, about ready to get flogged. And he says, look, i got to question this guy. I just heard some news that got my attention, and I need to ask you something, sir. And so Paul's laying there. He's tied up. He says, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul says, yes, I am. And then look at the guy's response, verse 28. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. And Paul says, but I was born a citizen. Now look at how this guy responds to that, verse 20, to this news. Verse 29, last verse here. says, those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was phobeo, scared to death. And it says, when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. This guy was scared for his life because he had just shackled a Roman citizen. He hadn't flogged him. Magistrates had flogged him. He hadn't stripped him down and embarrassed him publicly and humiliated him publicly. Magistrates had done that. And yet this guy, just for putting Paul and a Roman citizen in chains, is scared for his life. Let's go back to the story in Acts chapter 16. We'll wrap it up here. Verse 39. It says, they came to appease them. Acts chapter 16, verse 39. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. So these magistrates, they got one card to play. 
And that card is mercy. Right? They come hands and knees to appease Paul, to beg Paul, to plead with Paul. Paul, you've got all the chips. You've got all the cards. Paul, we don't have a, we're dead here. If, if you share this news up the food chain, we're toast. We know we are. We showed you no mercy, Paul. We don't deserve it, but we're coming asking for it because it's the only thing we got. And so they're asking Paul for mercy, even though they showed no mercy to Paul. Um, it says, verse 40, and they want him to leave quietly, right? Leave town quietly, verse 40, it says. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went over to Lydia's house, right? You want us to leave town? We'll leave town when we're ready. He's only been there a week. So they go over to Lydia's house, one of these, the first convert in, the, in Philippi, and they spend some time there, it says, encouraging the brothers, and then they left. So again, Paul finds himself in a situation where, okay, I will be silent about what's happened here. I won't tell on you magistrates, but my silence is going to come at a price. I'm not just going to walk out of here and let you all have your way with these new fledgling Christians that we have come to Christ in this church. But this church, fellas, magistrates, is now going to be protected by your hand. That is, if somebody has a problem with Lydia... All Lydia needs to do is go down and tell the magistrates about it, and problem handled. Right? If somebody has a problem with the Philippian jailer and his family and how they've been worshiping together and singing songs, and people in town don't like that he's worshiping, singing songs, or out sharing the gospel with people in the streets, and they come to the magistrates and they tell it to the magistrates, the magistrates, all they're going to do is say, I'm going to throw you in jail. I'm going to flog you for messing with these folks because these folks are friends of Paul, and anybody who's a friend of Paul is a friend of ours. Right? But Paul realizes, hey, look, I'll be silent, but my silence is going to come at a price. Okay, well, that's our treatment of this text for today, and that's how this church in Philippi got started. That's how this letter ended up being written that you and I are able to read today, and we've been studying these last weeks. Um, and so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. It's a question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, people getting flogged, people being thrown in jail. I mean, that doesn't happen in America because you're believing in Jesus. Just an FYI that folks in Colorado and California have not been meeting for church since March. And there are pastors of churches in Colorado that are getting fined every week by the local government and by the governor of Colorado because of their meeting together to assemble and worship. They're doing it with social distance. They're doing it with masks. They're doing all the things that they're supposed to do, the government's asked them to do. But, you know, we're in Georgia, friends. This is not, it's not this way everywhere. The freedoms and liberties which we are enjoying in our state are not the way. I mean, we got seven states in this country that are still shut down. Think about that. Um, but you say, yeah, well, still, I mean, nobody's getting flogged, right? So what difference does all this make to me? It's all those years ago. Well, it's a great question. Let me see if we can answer that. I want to um, take us back to Acts chapter 22 and that uh, a situation where Paul and the Roman commander were having an exchange, Acts chapter 22. And something that the commander says, Acts chapter 22 and verse 28. Uh, this was intriguing to me. He says, then the commander said... I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. And then Paul says, but I was born a Roman citizen. Now, one of the things about, you know, unless you were born in Italy, you weren't a Roman citizen. 
unless you were born in the motherland of Rome, then you weren't a Roman citizen. Maybe you were born because your dad was an ambassador or senator working somewhere off, and then you'd be born a Roman citizen. But pretty much unless you were born in the homeland, those were the only people who got this right of Roman citizenship. The other, only other way that you could become a Roman citizen was to pay a big price. Like you had to save up for 10 years, and this commander, not just a soldier in the army, but this commander who probably made pretty good money, says, I had to pay a big price. That's what he's referring to here. He bought in so that he could have the rights and privileges of a Roman citizen. I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. Now, back in the first century, um, you know, Jews didn't, uh, really didn't become Roman citizens, even if they had the money. Rome regarded them as second-class, third-class citizens, just pretty much told them, we're not even interested in your money. We just don't want you all as Roman citizens. So it had been very rare amongst Jewish people for somebody to even be able to buy in. But here Paul says, not only I didn't buy in, I actually was born a Roman citizen. And so that kind of got my wheels turned and got me asking the qu- thinking about and asking the question, how is it that Saul, a little Jewish boy, right, who was born in the city called Tarsus, was born a Roman citizen, something that was very rare among Jews, something that was um, a yeah, really, really privileged thing to happen. How is that possible? Well, let's kind of take a little trip back through history for a few moments, if you would, with me. I want to show you a picture here of a guy by the name of Julius Caesar. Uh, there's a bust of Julius Caesar. He was the Caesar of Rome from 46 to 44 BC. Got another picture here for you, and it's a painting of when Julius Caesar was murdered. Um, a couple of guys, a couple of senators by the name of Brutus and another, um, uh, I guess you'd call him a, a senator. I don't know if he was a senator or not, but another uh, political class fellow by the name of Cassius, they got some senators together and said, look, we don't like it that Julius Caesar is all of his power and everything. We'd like to have it for ourselves. That's what Brutus wanted, really. And so um, we, we think we need to murder him. And so that's what they do. That's what they're doing here in this picture. And Shakespeare wrote a um, play about Julius Caesar, and you see him, the tragedy of Julius Caesar, and you see him getting murdered there. And so some of the senators, uh, when, they, when they were getting together in, in the Senate, and Julius Caesar takes his seat among them, and uh, they, they, all a bunch of senators just rush out from their seats, and they stabbed him 23 times, killed him. He stood there and bled to death. And uh, so then what ends up happening is Julius Caesar has a son. His son is Augustus, um, and his son uh, is you know, due to take over things on behalf of his dad. But Brutus wants power. Well, Brutus realizes some of the other senators said, no, hold on here, we got a bloodline thing going on, and it ought to belong to Augustus. Others said, well, we want Brutus. And so what happened is uh, Brutus and Cassius assemble an army to fight against the Roman army. So a civil war takes place. I've got a map here for you. Um, and you can see here the Roman Empire. Um, and on this map, you can see Italy way on the one side, and then you can see on the far side, you can see Antioch in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Well, just above Antioch and around the corner is a city called Tarsus. And this is where Brutus and Cassius uh, amass their army to go to war against Rome so that Brutus can hopefully become the new Caesar himself. And so he, over the course of two years, he's amassing an army there, and there are skirmishes fighting back and forth. And finally, the armies of Augustus defeat the armies of Brutus um, out on the battlefield someplace, but here's what's interesting and what applies to our story today, is that in 42 BC, when this civil war, the battle finally took place and Augustus wins, in 42 BC, um, Augustus realizes after the civil war's over and he's become the victor, he realizes that the people of the city of Tarsus had actually been working on his behalf. 
They were behind, in other words, they were behind enemy lines and they had remained loyal to Augustus. They were working like saboteurs behind enemy lines. Maybe they were pulling the pins on the ox carts. I don't know what they did, but whatever it was that they did, they were working behind the lines against Brutus and his armies, unbeknownst to him, to reward the citizens, get this, of Tarsus. What do you think he gave them? Ha, 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 ha. We can kind of see where things are going here, right? This God who looks down the corridor of time and realizes, hey, I've got this guy who's coming online. He's going to be born in the city of Tarsus, and I need for him to be a Roman citizen so that one day this church, he'll get flogged, and he'll be a Roman citizen, and this church can be protected. I need to get him born a Roman citizen, something very rare amongst Jewish people. And so God orchestrated for the, for the citizens of Tarsus, where Paul would be born, to be born a Roman citizen. Well, the story gets even better. Let's get back a little bit further in history to 171 B.C. A guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He was one of these Greek rulers who ruled one of the four kingdoms that Alexander's big kingdom had been split up into. It's called the Ptolemaic Empire. And you got a map for him. We got, I think we got a map. We have a picture of him, and then we got a map for him. By the way, his name, Epiphanes, does anybody, anybody tell me what the word Epiphanes mean, Epiphany means? Uh-huh. Yeah, you've seen God. That's what that means. It's a revelation. It means that you've seen God. So this guy names himself, you've seen God. A little bit of an ego, right? Um, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. So he was Antiochus IV, added a little bit extra so that you know who was coming, right? And so what he does is he doesn't just want to rule the Ptolemaic Empire, which is kind of northern Egypt and that whole region of Israel, but he also wants to take over the Seleucid part of the Greek Empire and beyond. He, he has big aspirations, and so what he does is he goes to war against the Seleucids in an attempt to conquer that territory. I think we got our map up. We got our map up. Go ahead and put our map up. And he goes to war against the Seleucids with the intent of, I'm going to take over this territory. He's very successful. He takes over Israel. He takes over northern Syria. He's traveling up around the corner of the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea to a city called what? Tarsus. Isn't that interesting? And so while he's there in Tarsus, he realizes it was a nowheresville. It was a little crossroads of a town. There's nothing going on there. But he realizes this is a great strategic military site. I can set up my armies here, and from this point, we can launch out into Asia Minor, and we can take over the Seleucids, and we can take back the Greek Empire and consolidate it all under me. Uh, you've seen God, right? And um, I thought it was funny, but anyhow. So, so, he, so that's, what, that's, his, that's his ambition. And so he gets to Tarsus, and he sets up, he wants to set up Tarsus as this kind of launching point, strategic launching point for all of his military campaigns. But the problem is there's nobody in Tarsus, it's a small little town, so he has to grow the population of Tarsus. And the way that he does that is he reaches down into other territories that he's conquered, places like Lebanon, places like modern-day Lebanon, places like Israel, places like uh, Syria, and he pulls some of the local people from those territories, and he resettles them in the city of Tarsus because he needs people to build his garrisons, he needs people to build his forts, he needs people to grow the crops that are going to support his troops. He needs all that support mechanism of people to uh, fuel his army and his military ambitions. Um, so uh, this guy goes to war uh, with the rest of that part of the world. Um, I had another one of those moments. Where am I going from here? Because, uh, right? Have y'all doing okay? All right, I know there's a lot of information for y'all to take in. But anyhow, so um, what ends up happening is you got this guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV in 171 B.C., and he basically takes people out of these territories to come resettle them in Tarsus. Well, among the people that he resettled were or, well, ancestors of the Apostle Paul. 
Paul's great-great-great-grandfather and great-great-great-grandmother are taken out of the motherland. And Paul's Jewish, right? He's from Israel. And his family would have been, he was not born there, but his family would have been from Israel. What were they doing in Tarsus? Well, this guy by the name of Tychus needed people. And so he took people, forced them out of their homeland, out of Israel, up to, we got our map, let me throw our map back up there, up to that area of Tarsus to build the garrisons, build the forts. And I'm sure, I'm sure there were many nights that Paul's great-great-great-grandmother cried herself to sleep thinking about the temple, thinking about her family that she was taken from, thinking about her brothers and sisters that she'd likely never see again. And I'm sure there were days when his great, Paul's great-great-great-grandfather, out working the plow to grow food to give to these soldiers, shook his fist at God, said, God, I don't understand. Why are you doing this to me? Why are we here? We need to be back home, not plowing some field, right? <sighs> Let's put it all together. God needed Paul to get flogged. But before Paul could get flogged and humiliated and be thrown in prison without a trial, he needed to be a Roman citizen. And in order for Paul to be a Roman citizen, he needed him to be born in a place where the people of that place would be born Roman citizens. And that place was Tarsus. And in order for Paul to be the people who were there, Paul's descendants would have to be taken from their homeland generations before and resettled in that territory. Also that, this little church in a town called Philippi could be protected and could flourish and the gospel could be spread. Friends, we serve a God who looks down the corridor of time. He knows what he's doing. It may not make sense. It may never make sense to your life and mine. But our God says he's working through all things for the good of those who love him. So that you and I could gather together over these last 11 weeks and hear words like Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Words like Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility regard others as better than yourselves. Philippians 3 and verse 7. I want to know, to experience Christ and the power of his resurrection fellowship of his sufferings. Words like Philippians 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we know that in all things, God works together for our good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just a fresh reminder this morning that you are at work in human history to accomplish your great purposes. Lord, whatever it is that we find ourselves in, good times or bad, fist-shaking times, crying times, whatever, Lord, it may be, this morning, encourage us, encourage us with this promise 
that you look down through the corridor of time and our community and our family and that you are working through even this for our good. Lord, as we gather around this table this morning, may we just fresh and anew surrender ourselves to your good plans for us. Give us confidence that our lives in your hands is the best place for them to be. Strike that chord in our children. Or may we walk each day with this promise, with this promise that you're working through, you're working in all things for our good. We thank you for that today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The communion elements are there in the seat in front of you. We offer, ask you to share in this time of communion together, and then we'll close with time of worship.